Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We've got an important guest to get started with, folks, just to say that John and I will be here uh, through Thursday. We take the Gulfstream back Thursday night, the Red Eye. Uh, to really get back, John, for Jobs Day in America, which really goes to the synthesis of market house adjustment over the weekend. A lot of houses saying, not so much we were wrong, here's a new view, but just saying we got to catch up with all the events. Market to market to some degree. Let's bring in Marvin Bath, shall we? Barclays head of FX strategy. It feels like that, Marvin. It was already in the price a market looking for two rate cuts. Then the likes of Barclays come out and say, yes, that's probably what we're going to get. JP Morgan calling for the same. Walk me through why two cuts this year from the Federal Reserve make sense with unemployment south of 4% and GDP in and around two, three percentage points. Well, to be fair, Jonathan, markets had a pretty big repricing over the weekend as well. I mean, front end uh, of Fed funds moved 17 points. We're now pricing in 63 basis points by December. That's amazing. Um, and most a big chunk of that just came over the uh, weekend. Now, where, where does this come from? Uh, I think the shock is that a lot of people had uh, believed uh, through most of this year that uh, the president would be swayed by markets uh, and um, would not put Push ahead with an aggressive trade agenda. Um, that was the hope that they kept clinging to throughout the China negotiations. When at the end of last week, he seemed to open up fronts against Mexico, uh, Europe. India and reportedly uh, almost Australia. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I question question that one, but. Um, uh, w- when you see all of that at once, all of a sudden, everybody has to rethink, oh my gosh, this guy might be serious here. And what are going to be the growth impact? Precisely to your point, Jonathan, growth in the U.S. looks really good right now, and you got a lot of ongoing momentum. But when you have that many different things going on and potential serious feedback from equity markets to U.S. households, yeah. does that start to have an impact? So, Marvin, we've got a big week ahead. We've got an ECB decision, central bank decisions from, I believe, Australia and India yep. littered in somewhere between. Then payrolls Friday, too. For me, actually, one of the most important data points of the week is the ISM out in about three hours' time for the United States. Because just two weeks ago, there was a really soft PMI read in America, and it just started to feed a little bit of anxiety around the growth story in the United States. How important is that ISM read for you in a few hours' time, Marvin? Well, I'd split that two ways. There's the market reaction, which I think to your point, Jonathan, uh, you had a very strong market reaction uh, a few weeks ago. I think you'll get a same um, thing here if you had uh, a big negative uh, su- surprise here. But remember, the survey data are not actually uh, that useful at forecasting the economy. What will be more, much more important is what's going on with continued um, strength in household income growth. So that's where I'm going to look towards the end of the week, towards payrolls. Okay, that's the economics. I want to talk for our global Wall Street audience here. What time is it, John, in New York? It's 7 o'clock in New York. They're getting ready for a Monday. And on a volatility basis, that jump on a standard deviation basis, we're not to crisis. We're not to panic. I'm sorry. We're getting there quickly. It's two standard deviations. It's 2.4. Some indicators are even three-ish standard deviations. What is the immediacy of this Monday in the move we've seen over the last two weeks? Uh, Tom, I I think it really goes back to that point that 
there is a comeuppance across markets uh, that their assumptions that the president would be driven by markets may not be correct. And when you have a you know sudden cathartic uh, shift in the market narrative, which is what seems to have happened here, you can get these types of, of very abrupt moves in, in markets. So let's get to the FX call. Last year, ultimately, what this stress abroad meant was a stronger dollar. Yes. Is it the same story in 19 for you, Marvin? Yeah, although I think the pattern uh, is is a bit more different uh, in, in the sense that, um, you know, last year we had uh, a effective range trade in G10 uh, and weakening of emerging markets, both of which, by the way, we forecast. Um, <laughs> just get that in there, <laughs> just, Marvin. Just, just, throw that, just throw Don't that worry, in. Don't worry, we'll call you out when you're wrong. Yeah, 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 exactly. He was 2 nothing Liverpool <laughs> over the tots as well. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Um, But now we're getting to a much more aggressive potential negative growth environment. Now, where are the places in the world that have not been able to generate their own domestic growth? It's been Europe and it's been emerging markets. So I think much more significant potential downside from there. Um, But Japan actually is an alternate um, uh, safe haven. This is one of the uh, calls we've been making for a while is actually the the yen stands to benefit from these uh, issues. So walk me through your advice to people this morning. We wake up, futures gap lower once again. What I see this morning, though, is a lot of old news on repeat. Over the weekend, the president saying tariffs were beautiful. China digging its heels in. We had a white paper from the Chinese. I read the white paper. There's nothing really anything new in there, nothing substantial, no real change from the Chinese. The South Korean trade data, ugly, but we knew that a couple of weeks ago anyway. We had a lead on the exports from South Korea, and they're terrible. The Chinese Kaishin PMI, pretty much unchanged from the previous month. It's not great news, yes. but it's not incrementally new. Are we just lacking a positive catalyst? Is that what we need now, just I, to kind of stabilize? Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's it. But we also need to see um, real developments from here. To to your point <clears throat> on on the trade front, yeah. So we uh, we're all awaiting the G twenty meeting. See if anything shifts. Oh, come between. on, what's going to shift at the G- when is the G twenty meeting? The end of the month. End of the month in Japan. Where are we going? We can go if you like. I think we should. I mean, this has already go. been a huge success. Well, we should go. I mean, we're only eight minutes in, Tom. Let's not define it as a success just yet. Eight minutes in. Eight minutes I mean, in. I, not, minutes I was in. talking about Claridge's last night. <laughs> Marvin, one last thing. Can you make foreign exchange calls here? Can Can you make a call given this swirl of data and information, or yeah. are you really on the sidelines? No, I, th- I think I think you can. The one place where it does seem Please, pretty much untradeable is sterling. But, um, you know, the, the dollar is yeah. ultimately the beneficiary of uh, a, uh, you, you know, volatile global environment because the U.S. is a store of value. So you're going to go long dollar better. here right now, yeah. even with lower rates. Marvin yeah. Barth, thank you so much. Thank Just you. Great, great to see fabulous you, Fabulous note. He had, he had a whole note, folks, wrapped around a band. John, this is a band before your time, REM. He had a band, he had a whole research note wrapped around I remember, the boys from Atlanta. I remember R.E.M., Tom. You do? Oh, Not that okay. old school. Why don't you bring in Professor Cardone? I think he was lining you up with a three-bedroom condo. Down south of Rome. We were in the middle of um, negotiations. Yeah, the former Italian <laughs> Treasury Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Lorenzo. Great Good to morning. have you with us. Good morning. Let's talk about the current situation in Italy. There is a growth and stability pact 
in the European Union, where you must try and have a budget deficit of in and around 3% of GDP. The Italians and this Italian government would like to have the purse strings loosened a little bit. Do you think that's the right approach to the current situation? Uh, the short answer is no, because uh, Italy has already a very high debt-to-GDP uh, uh, ratio and uh, certainly worsening the fiscal situation uh, would undermine confidence and would undermine uh, the interest of international investors for, for Italian government bond paper. Why yeah. is that still the case, Lorenzo? Why is the debt-to-GDP ratio still so important when, say, for Japan it's north of 200%? Why is it still so important to a country like Italy in Europe? Well, uh, Japan has uh, its own uh, currency, and uh, the central bank is buying paper aggressively, and uh, and uh, domestic investors are not uh, flying away. So that's a peculiar situation, I would say. Uh, Italy certainly is not in that situation. Uh, I think there is a risk of capital flights, and there is a risk that uh, 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 the fiscal situation deteriorates uh, without having any uh, central bank uh, uh, stepping in and 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 uh, and buying paper. So I think that is the the situation right now. Now I think that uh, there is indeed a problem of aggregate demand. So it would be desirable to have some leeway in terms of uh, public finances, but that only if the government delivers on structural reforms that can right. enhance the the growth potential over time. John and I could speak to you for an hour, and it would be an exceptionally important hour. Let me begin with square one. Why should our U.S. listeners care this time about Italy? Italy's been a mess for years, decades, but you and others say this time is different. Why is now different? Well, I wouldn't say that Italy has been in a mess for, for years. I mean, Italy has struggled to uh, to address uh, all these uh, uh, you know structural issues, uh, one by one, and uh, admittedly very slowly and uh, with lack of conviction, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But uh, this time is different because we have a different government. We have a government mm -hmm. that uh, uh, behaves like a maverick and uh, doesn't really well, recognize uh, the, the, the rules and uh, the, the, the constraints. The government says, why are we being treated like this? France, in many ways, in different ways, is in worse shape. How do you analyze the relative mess of Italy versus other nations, including France? Well, France has been in excessive deficit procedure for quite a long while. Uh, keep in mind that in the Eurozone, Spain is still in excessive deficit procedure, so um, uh, Italy would not be uh, alone, so to speak. Uh, um, uh, the issue is that uh, you need to find ways uh, to negotiate and find ways to get flexibility from uh, the fiscal constraints. Uh, the previous government has tried, at least, uh, with difficulties, but has has obtained a lot of flexibility for structural reforms, for investment spending. Um, uh, admittedly, hasn't delivered much, but uh, uh, but again, at least has tried. And this government is not even trying. That's the problem. Do you think that the idea of counter-cyclical fiscal policy will ever take hold in Europe? Uh, well, the the rules are designed to achieve counter-cyclical fiscal policy. Uh, but uh, uh, as a matter of fact, Europe, and Italy especially, has, has not really performed counter-cyclical fiscal policy. has actually gone through a tremendous tightening in 2011-2012, and then only very gradually has actually loosened uh, fiscal policy. Now that the situation uh, is still fragile, but certainly better than in the past, 
uh, is actually loosening policy. Um, uh, now you might argue that uh, it, there would be a need to loosen fiscal policy. Uh, I would say that, again, there is still an issue with aggregate demand, uh, but you have to consider the constraints and uh, you have to consider that Italy faces on almost a daily basis financial markets. It needs to finance a huge amount of debt and it has to attract investors. So, Professor, this raises a really important point. Yeah. You still believe that redenomination risk is on the table? In th- Italy, and that if they don't deal with it, they aren't able to do counter-cyclical fiscal policy because of that. So how do we address redenomination risk? Can we address it in Europe? Is it just something that hangs over the continent for as long as the Eurozone is together? I think there is still a default risk and a redenomination risk. And that's why uh, Italian government bonds are still under pressure. I think uh, in order to address these issues... Uh, uh, the the ECB, um, I mean, came in and the the OMT was very effective in 2012 to kind of reduce the redenomination risk. But this time, I think it's really up to the Italian government to make sure that there is no intention in any way uh, to go along uh, these lines. Where does this end up? And by that, I mean, we've gone through an ECB experiment of Duisenberg, Trichet, and on. We're going to get a new head of the ECB. To be honest, sir, you would be on a a list to be considered as the head of the ECB. Where do we end up, given what John said about a broken fiscal system, a one-currency system? What's the escape valve to get us to EU stability? Uh, I think uh, uh, Europe uh, is uh, still unfinished, okay? And uh, the the Eurozone uh, uh, framework, the governance framework is still unfinished business. As you know, the so-called banking union is still uh, still halfway, and uh, and you know that governance is still not complete. Um, I think the the situation uh, needs to be addressed. In my view, for instance, it would be absolutely essential to have a safe asset um, that would actually avoid uh, capital flights within the Eurozone. Yeah. And I think uh, that would be a way to address some of these issues, at least. Uh, we are out of time. Lorenzo Cadonia, thank you so much for joining us at our studios today. Thank you. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. He is with the London School of Economics. Lorenzo Cadonia, and please look for his writing over the coming uh, weeks. This is an immense joy. We never see her because she is a White House correspondent of immense ability for Bloomberg. Her initial acclaim, incredible work for the Tampa Tribune years ago on a resurgent Republican Party in the South, but much, much more. She is Margaret Talev, uh, who has said with great respect about our American politics. She's, of course, here with Bloomberg News as a president. You realize what that intro was to the United Kingdom. The more competent you are the less likely you are likely to be on this show. That's true. That's we can essentially never what it. you just said. Well, you yeah, can just tr- keep it coming. Come on, Margaret. Just, you know, we can just, ne- we, we never can get her. But Margaret Tullev in studio with us today. And part of that, with our team coverage here, uh, there will be those that will look at the, the coming days, the greeting by the Queen today and that. And you pick it up in Portsmouth. And this will be emotional as well. What will greet the President of the United States and leaders around the world 
in a very emotional Portsmouth. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. What we're seeing, what we're going to see this week in Portsmouth and then in Normandy is uh, up close and personal, uh, a reminder um, of the legacy of the United States and the European allies um, since World War II. And there are um, the veterans from D-Day are... um, getting older and older. This is probably the last of these official ceremonies. And so much of the president's messaging since he took office in 2017 has been um, to test the strength and the resilience of that alliance, to question um, the sort of modern form of that alliance, and to go back and forth between talking about how important the allies are and to prodding the allies, to pulling out of the Paris uh, climate deal, to right. talking about payments to NATO or payment defense you know, commitments toward NATO. This is not that. This is something very different Paul than that. Paul Waldman of the Washington Post with an essay in the photograph of Ted Roosevelt and Quentin Roosevelt's tombstones at Normandy. And then we move over to this president and the uproar over the John McCain in Asia as well. What is the perception right now of the president that you see, Margaret, day to day with the Pentagon? The president has uh, been a a great defender of uh, defense budgets, talked about the importance of the military uh, in in his rhetoric when he addresses troops or veterans or uh, anyone in the military, talks about how he loves the military more than the last president does. And yet, is that true? Well, he's, he's tone deaf on these other issues. And John McCain is uh, a revered uh, figure in an American military From four families hero. of admirals and captains, we of, might point out. Of course. Well, yes, the, 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 the USS McCain wasn't actually even for McCain. It was for his family. Thank you. Uh, but, uh, and, so the, and so the president has a blind spot on some of these issues. And I think his uh, staff, as they have tried to prepare for this trip, uh, both the political staff and the National Security Council have sought um, to have the pro- president focus on um, the, the, the diplomacy and the historic sweep of this event. They have sought to minimize his interactions and, and his distractions with uh, those issues such as British politics. But mm. before he had even landed on the ground, he um, he cannot resist. It seems that he can't resist. <laughs> Mar- um, sorry, Margaret walked in the studio, John Farrell, and she said, Tom, I'm half your height. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> true. I'm like four foot one. He's in this um, really strange <laughs> spat with the with the mayor of London. It's very strange, Margaret, and it's not just one way. It comes from the mayor of London as well. Sadiq Khan, not exactly laying out the red carpet on the last <laughs> no, two visits, No, in fact, I, to, par- I, to paraphrase her, but this is almost exactly, he, he said, why is Britain rolling out the red carpet? And uh, Sadiq Khan uh, put out this op-ed at Brandon the Guardian, of course, uh, over the weekend, and then just in case the president hadn't read it yet, retweeted it about 20 <laughs> minutes before <laughs> Air Force One went wheels down, and uh, Trump... Uh, faced with the choice of taking the high road or punching back, did what um, he prefers to He do. punched back. Yeah. So let's talk about the next couple of days. Wednesday is really, really important for the world to pause and remember. Tuesday, there's going to be this working dinner, lunch with the Prime Minister and several executives too. What can we expect from tomorrow on the policy front, if we can expect anything at all? Tomorrow is an important policy day for a couple of reasons. Uh, even though Theresa May is on her way out, and so they're not going to like wrap up Huawei or uh, bilateral trade with a bow, uh, it is a, a moment for the president and for the prime minister and for their two teams to move the ball forward on some of these issues that are going to exist, not only beyond her prime ministership, but 
perhaps beyond his presidency as well. Some of these are mm. long-term, decades-long issues uh, and involve um, things such as intelligence sharing, okay? But uh, beyond that, the president uh, wants, it's obvious now, there's no doubt, wants to put his thumb on the scale in terms of the next uh, prime minister's contest right. because he wants to influence Brexit. He wants to make sure Brexit happens. He wants to make sure Brexit happens in a way that he thinks will help the United States. Very quickly, one more question. Secretary Mnuchin came down the stairs after the president and the first lady. Are they in speaking terms on trade? <laughs> They are. And I think with Kevin Hassett on his way out, um, that uh, having Mnuchin around. Do you know what happened to Hassett? Did he resign? Was he kicked out? What's the, what's the uh, we're, we're still getting the the, the announcement came very shortly, you know, uh, before the president's arrival Margaret's here. Margaret's been busy, Tom. She hasn't got the scoop yet. <laughs> okay, Margaret Come on. Tullif, thank Margaret you so Tullif, much. great we to, see you. to see you. We see, her, we see her Wednesday or Thursday. She's back. I hope she's us. back with us tomorrow. Am I right, John Farrow, the Vogue right now are PMIs? I think the ISMs and PMIs have always been important. The ISMs, particularly in the United States, are an important indicator of, of U.S. growth, Tom. Oh, okay. Let's ask Diane Swonks with us, Grant Thornton, Chief and Economist. It's great. Is it great to speak with Diane Swonk on a non Fantastic. Day? Diane, talk to us about the importance of ISMs. Con- convert a non-believer in Tom Keane. I I shouldn't make me laugh. I'm recovering from severe acute laryngitis. But, um, you know, the soft indicators with my voice uh, lower, much lower than usual. No, it's fine, Diane. Thank you for being with us. You sound terrible, but continue. I appreciate it. Um, This is the most voice I've had in a week. So, um, anyway, those soft indicators are really important today because they're more of a real time indicator. And the employment report coming out on Friday, of course, will be another one of those closer indicators that doesn't have as big of a lag. And people are really trying to feel how much is the trade situation affecting us, how much, you know, those soft indicators have shown more weakness than some of the overall measures of the U.S. economic growth. We're looking closer to 1.7 percent GDP growth in the second quarter. So that's why we're paying so much attention to them, because they give us a sense of real time, although only, albeit a very small Mm. slice of the overall pie, the economic pie we're looking at. And now we rip up. And I remember those reports, too, by the way, Tom. (laughs) <laughs> you, you remember M1, M2 when you were freshman year at Michigan. And now we rip up the script. There is no one genetically from a family heritage more hardwired to speak on the economics of trade and the American auto industry like Diane Swank. Diane, you grew up bleeding. Was it GM that you grew up bleeding? Uh, GM and Ford, actually. My dad yeah. started at Ford, went to GM, and my stepfather was at exactly. Ford. So, um, we had it all covered. Had Mustangs we, we, and Cadillacs. You know, AMLO, just out of the headline moments ago, U.S. is friends with Mexico. There's been a blur of headlines. What does all this trade stuff mean for American auto? It's really, really hard. This was written for the auto industry. NAFTA was written for the auto industry in 1995. It was written for the Midwestern states. In fact, at that point in time, the supply chain, the reason even 5%, which seems like a small tariff to start with, it compounds so rapidly because of the number of times a part or component goes over the border before a vehicle is completed. So the amount of cost that you add in from the get-go, from June 10th on, is quite high. And that's why you even see some business looking out there to sue the administration on this. Can people like you or people that give the Fed shop, Chicago, whatever, Cleveland, can they explain to leadership, including the president of the United States, 
the number of jobs that will be lost? Well, I think the people who can explain it best are now leaving the administration, which is unfortunate seeing Including Kevin Including Dr. Hassett, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, the reality is, is that this has become, the goal of this is not just trade. The goal of this is not just bringing jobs back to the U.S. There's a larger goal. Clearly, the goal of the Mexican tariffs have to do with refugees at the border and what's going on at the border. That could be solved other ways, and um, we need to think about what the costs and trade-offs of every solution are, but... I think what the, there's a disconnect between the economic consequences of actions and emotional reaction to what's happening at the border. That's what makes this latest turn in the last week so, so difficult for economists, Diane, that I speak to. With China, it's almost a known entity that some economists even agree. In fact, many people that I speak to agree with the president's approach to China to get them to open up the economy, because ultimately, if we can achieve that, it could be better for the global economy. With Mexico, it's moved from an economic tool to an economic goal towards an economic tool for a political outcome and Diane it just wonders makes you wonder what else is in play and that makes it really difficult to have any kind of forecast on growth how on earth does an economist like yourself come up with a forecast on growth with all these extra variables to deal with what do you do Diane well, it's a great question, and one of the things that we're looking at, and it's, you know, it's not something you can just add up. What you have to start doing is saying, what kind of toll can this play in terms of the market psyche, in terms of business psyche, in terms of consumer psyche? And what we've seen already is that some major indicators out there have already flipped into that pre-recession territory. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean a recession is imminent, but CEO confidence has fallen below the 50 um, threshold for the right. by the conference board. We've seen consumers, although they're confident about their current situation, yeah. they're not so happy about the future. We've seen that the ISM survey has fallen lower on the manufacturing side. All of those things suggest a fragility yeah. that could be compounded with these scares that make it very hard in that tipping point, the domino effect right. of something that could tip us into recession that doesn't look like it numerically by just the right. direct tariffs effects alone. And that's what we start looking yeah. at is the collateral damage. Diane, thank you so much. Your voice sounds like Janis Joplin after the third album. Uh, be nice. Well, Diane, thank you. Diane Swank, thank, thank you, you so, so much. Thank you so much, Diane. Grant Thornton today. Say it with Come meaning. Well, yes. you, you can be nice this morning. You've got it in you. I, I, I'm trying. Diane Swan. It's beautiful uh, just watching you try. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> 